One of the things that uh, we seek to do, I guess, is to address issues that people find stumbling blocks and uh, struggles in their life. And uh, we're here just for a few sessions. You, you don't get to say all that you would love to. And that's one of the reasons you bring resources. I'm going to draw your attention to a couple. Firstly, um, something I've been sharing everywhere I go called the Great Debate. Um, atheism, aggressive atheism, is severely impacting Christians in Australia and the Western world at the moment. People have become ashamed of, of, of creation. They've been, uh, they've been overwhelmed uh, often with aggressive evolutionary atheism. And somebody ought to stand up and say, excuse me, there really is another point of view. And uh, the, one of the largest services we ever had in our church was the night I debated a professional atheist, one of Richard Dawkins' followers, one of his disciples. And if you would like to see how that unfolded, how, how what he had to say about uh, our delusionary lifestyle as followers of Jesus and what a Christian minister can say in return. It was one of those extraordinary encounters that I like to share because often people are struggling with the issue, can I really believe my Bible? You know, can I really take my Bible seriously? Um, or I have friends and I don't know how to talk to them because they think the Bible is foolish. Well, the great debate may help you. Uh, and then there are a number of things that I, pr I bring with me on sex because sex is, again, one of the great stumbling blocks um, the, just recently, one of the great apologists in the world started a new website called Just One Click Away, One Click Away, Josh McDowell. Many of you will know the, the name Josh McDowell. His basic premise at the moment is this. We thought that maybe atheism or uh, maybe communism or, or Islam would knock the church over. He said none of that can ever knock the church over, but pornography could just well do the job. And as a result... Um, because in, in a, such a highly sexualized world, we have to have a very clear theology on sex. And most Christians don't have one. And they don't, often they don't have one because they've never been taught one. And I've brought a number of those resources. My book, From Good Man to Valiant Man, which is about male sexuality, The Search for Intimacy, which is particularly a theology for sex for young singles in particular, and the parents. And those resources are there because they make a difference. And these are some of the most critical issues we're facing at the moment. Now, I come to you on at the end of family week, and as a result, uh, we're going to deal with family issues, and today I'm going to talk to you about two paradoxes. This morning I'm going to talk to you about a paradox, and tonight I'm going to talk about a paradox. The paradox I want to talk to you today about is the paradox of being sons and daughters of God, and uh, there is a paradox in being a son or a daughter of God, which if you don't understand and you don't address, it has the ability to discourage you so profoundly you give up on God. Now, I've been pastoring for 35 or 40 years, and as a result, I've seen a lot of stuff. And uh, I've, had to, I've had to walk through this personally. So let's go to the Word of God today, and let's pray as we do. Father, you open your Word, I pray. Lord, you, you have said that the entrance of your Word would bring light, and how we need light. God, I pray in the midst of all of the challenges of life, help us to interpret the challenges of life through Jesus' eyes, that we might be followers of him and never stumble and never, be, and never fail. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Let me start with a passage in the Bible. Let me present you with the paradox of sonship right off the bat. Romans 8 says this, those who are led by the Spirit of God. Verse 14, 
are sons of God. Now, sons sounds, uh, in, a, in, a, in a political age where misogyny has become the word of the hour. Um, this is not a sexist term. Son is not primarily a masculine term. It is a concept about relationship. God is not sexual, and yet the Bible describes God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, th they're not sexual terms. They're terms about relationship. So just to kind of explain what we're saying, those who are sons or daughters or sons and daughters of God, uh, they're led by the Spirit of God. They're children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons or daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And here comes the paradox. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The significance of suffering in a walk with God. One of the great paradoxes of life. Now, of all of the words that are used to describe God, it is fascinating that Jesus only ever wanted to use one. Uh, if, when Jesus came, he could have used at least 80 different titles, and he could have impressed us, being uh, the word in flesh, he could have impressed us by using all those titles over and over again in a bewildering uh, display of his theological capacity. But he never did. He spoke to us like we were children. Jesus never talked about El Ruach or Jehovah Zidkanu or Jehovah Makadesh Kem. He just kept on using one name for God over and over again. What was that name? Come on, tell me, tell me. What is it? Father. Father. He came and said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father which art in heaven. Go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I have come to reveal to you the Father. I and the Father are one. And then we have a creed that says, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Um, Jesus came to reveal to us that God is Father. Now, what does it mean to be a father? Now, this might help you if you're a father to kind of think this through. But when you call someone a father, what are you actually saying about them? What are the essential attributes of fatherhood? Well, here's the first one. A father is a progenitor. In other words, a father gives you life. Now, I was sitting down here thinking about this before, and it's always dangerous to say something when you haven't thought it through carefully. But it seems to me that when God created man in his own image, God as the father created man in his own image, male and female created he them. And in some ways, the whole concept of father is wrapped up in a couple. It's wrapped up not just in a man, but it's wrapped up in a, in a husband and a wife. It's the fatherhood concept was was manifested by God as he shared his father heart in male and female. So th that's a thought. I'll, I'll throw that in there and you can all boo later on. But I think it's an important issue because when you talk about fathers, often women sit there and say, yeah, but where do I fit? Well, you fit right in there because uh, you are a manifestation of the fatherhood of God as he 
expressed himself in male and female. A progenitor is one who begets. You can't have kids without a mother and a father. Dad, if you think you're that, if you think you're that impressive, let's see you pull it off all by yourself. A father is one who begets life. I used to have a father. His name was Roger Meyer. I'm only here because Roger Meyer once existed. If Roger had never been born, I have to wonder, would I have ever been born? Because my father was the source of my existence. And the only reason the human race is here is because there is a heavenly father. And he is creating a family for eternity in the earth. And the source of your existence is a father. So only, you're only here because you have one. The second thing about fatherhood is that then a father is the source of your capacities. You see, my dad used to say this. My dad was a school teacher. He used to say, the apple never falls far from the tree. And obviously it can't because I have at least 50% of my father's DNA. I can't be that much different from my dad because I carry his DNA. He, he, he was a school teacher. All I ever wanted to be was a school teacher. Why would that be? Well, I, I share his capacity. Now, when it comes to God as the Father, your capacities are in you because he has shared something of himself with you. You are a living miracle because your qualities, your giftedness, your nature, at least in fragmentary state, is a manifestation of the Father of, of all eternity. You are a living miracle. That's why a human being is so extraordinarily valuable, so extraordinarily worthwhile because you are here as a fragment of God's own divine nature. The third thing is that about fatherhood is that a father is a provider. Uh, he's one who feeds and supports and supplies. In other words, your father becomes the source of your provision. And uh, I, I remember the fact that I grew up in a home where my, my father labored, he served as a school teacher and he brought home the money and my mum and he together created a wonderful... I grew up in a home where I never heard an argument about money, where I, I never heard my parents uh, squabbling over, over finances because they lived for different things and my father was a great provider. My mother, I never saw my mother crying at the kitchen table because dad was down the pub squandering the money because life was difficult and he had to drown his sorrow. Uh, no, we, no, I never saw that because my father was a wonderful provider and one of the reasons that uh, life has been so good for me is that I grew up in a home that was so stable. I have stability woven into my heart uh, through, at least th through the uh, provision of my father and my mother. Now, a father also is a founder. Now, this is not so true of my earthly father, but it's certainly true of my heavenly father. Um, a father is the origin of purpose. The reason you exist is bound up in who your father is. A father establishes your reason for being. And while that may not have been so true with my earthly father, the only reason you and I exist is because the heavenly father has a plan and a purpose that stretches into all eternity. God's fatherly nature is the reason for your being here, the reason for your existence. Then fifthly, and dads, write this one down for you. One of the key roles of fatherhood is affirmation. The key, one of the key roles of fatherhood is to approve, to authorize. Um, you become the source of confidence in the next generation. When dad gives the teenager the car keys and says, yes, you can drive the family car, it is an act of empowering and authorization and approval. Listen to it in the life of Jesus. His ministry is about to begin. 
the heavens suddenly open and a voice from heaven is heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The stamp of fatherly authority upon a life. And fathers, uh, one of the most critical roles we play in the rising of the next generation in church is the affirmation and the coaching and the encouraging. I found that in Hal Oxley. One of the reasons I'm in ministry today is because an elderly statesman in the church became as a father to me and, and gave me the approval or the opportunity to do ministry. And he, and he affirmed me and said, Al, that, that, that was good. That wasn't so good, Al. But he acted as a father and he guided and affirmed and he began to establish in me a confidence that is one of the key roles of fathers. But here comes the issue that's a bit of a paradox, and this is where often the problem with both fathers in life and mothers in life and, and a relationship with God begins to hit a little bit of uh, troubled water. And that is that fathers are also teachers. Fathers must prepare for destiny. They have to prepare and instruct and train. In other words, fathers are often the source of your journey. And I have to say, there's no question in my life that the Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. God becomes the source of your journey in your life because he has um, an extraordinary perception of everlasting destiny and he will set about creating the necessary experiences in life that will prepare you for your journey. Um, now, if that's what a father does, what kind of spirit or heart does it require in you or in me well that's the spirit of a son see if someone is ever going to play the role of a father in your life whether it's a human being or whether it's God himself if someone is going to father you it calls for a response and the response is the spirit of a son or spirit of a daughter and it's important to say this there are four mindsets that you could adopt in life that have nothing to do with the spirit of a son. You could relate to authority. You could relate to a father or mother. You could relate to God with, with a very different mindset or a very different heart than the spirit of a son. And they came out right there in our text. For example, the Bible says this, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. In other words, you could respond to the father heart of God with the spirit of a slave. And that wouldn't be helpful for anybody. Now, how would you know if you were doing that? How could you tell if you were responding to God with the spirit of a slave? Well, these are the kind of thoughts and the words and the ideas that would get into the relationship all the time. Fear. It would always be about fear. You see a relationship with a father or God as always being about severity. It's about displeasure. You can never please them. There's never enough. You would always see correction as punishment. Uh, you'd see the relationship as carrying huge loads and bitter toil, and that's exactly where the scribes and the Pharisees found themselves. When Jesus had to correct them over the Sabbath day, he said, didn't you know that man was, made, was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man? The Sabbath day wasn't supposed to be a great burden you were carrying around. It was for you, you nongs. It was... It was to help you. It wasn't to be a big burden. But you see, when you've got the spirit of a slave, you constantly see things through a pair of glasses. You see things through glasses, and it's always displeasure and fear and severe. And Oh, God, it's so hard to serve the Lord. You know, that's the spirit of a slave. Now, there's a second way that you could relate. 
And that comes right out of the text too. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You could relate to God with the spirit of an orphan. Now, how would you know if you were relating to God with the spirit of an orphan? Well, different things get into the conversation. For example, things that you constantly feel uncared for. Uh, there's this constant sense that you're dispossessed, that uh, you've been abandoned, you're doing life alone, it's just me, it's just me, I'm all alone. Well, that's a spirit of, of an orphan. You feel powerless, as if you have no rights, there's been no privileges given to you. Well, that's the spirit of an orphan. The Bible says you haven't received that spirit. That's not how God wants to relate to you. You could relate to God with the spirit of a hireling. This is not good either. See, if you were to relate to God with the spirit of a hireling, you constantly see your relationship with God as having limits to your loyalty. And I think I bump into Christians or people who think they're Christians constantly who've kind of compartmentalized their life and they kind of clock on and clock off in their relationship with God. So on Sunday morning, they clock on. But when it comes to Sunday Arbo, or the ne they clock off again. And there are limits to loyalty. And it's kind of, well, that's not fair. I mean, after all, why can't I have sex with whom I want? I mean, after all, I'm an Australian. I'm free. I'm free. Well, uh, you, you don't talk like that when you're a son. You, you, you don't clock on and clock off. You don't talk about fair and unfair. The question is, Dad, what do you want from me? Father, where are you leading us? It's not about fair and, and unfair, and it's, it's not about what's in it for me. Why would I, well, what's in it for me? If I follow Jesus, what's in it for me? Cut that out. That's, that's the spirit of a hireling. It's not how sons behave. The worst of all, of course, is you could relate to, to a father with the, with the attitude of a criminal. And uh, that's, that's when it's always, always about the rule book, you know. Uh, and I get asked this question, not, in, not, not infrequently, is masturbation a sin? I get asked that question. Now, it's not that it's an illegitimate question, it's just it's the wrong question. Is masturbation a sin? Well, that's not really the question. The question is, is it, is it helpful? Is it, is it part of my, my sonship? Is this, is this an appropriate way for a son to live? It's not, it, show me the rules. I mean, if I can get around it, it's, what's the law? And, and, and where's the cutoff point? And crime and punishment and, and the legal response and God's, you see God as a judge and it's a, it's about prisoners and execution and sentences. That's the spirit of a criminal. Uh, but sons don't ask, don't ask that question. They ask different questions. They say, God, Paul could put it this way, all things are lawful for me, but not everything's helpful. As a son, you start to ask different questions. What would be the most helpful thing for us if we were going to be following God? Now, if you want to see the picture of a son... In its fullness, thank God, we've got a picture, and that's Jesus, who, who was the ultimate son. He was the, the manifestation of the spirit of sonship. And when you watch it in the life of Jesus, you see what it looks like when someone begins to relate to God as, as a son of God. Um, what would it look like? Well, first of all, a son lives with, with a father. Have you ever watched a, a little boy following his dad around? He, he can't take his eyes off him. Whatever dad's doing, he's doing. And I think that one of those marvelous stories in the Bible, Jesus has been lost for three days and his parents finally find him arguing with the people in the temple. And their first question is, why did you do this to us? Well, Jesus doesn't kind of relate to that question. It wasn't, well, I'm so sorry, you know, but I had higher price. He, he simply says to them, well, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? 
I mean, this is dad's business. Mum, you see, this is dad's business and it's not going so well. Have you heard what these guys are telling people? I mean, someone had to be here and correct some of this stuff because this is not good at all. I had to pay attention to dad's business. Why? Because I'm, I'm my father's son. I only do those things I see the father doing is what Jesus would say. Then, of course, it becomes an issue of identity. When you begin to live as a son of God, it becomes the, the essence of your identity. Jesus could say, he that has seen me has seen the father because I and the father are one. It's just, we're, I'm a little chip off the old block. Then comes the issue of obedience. In sons, you always see obedience. I come to do thy will, O God, a body you have prepared for me. And then, of course, comes the issue of honor. You see, when you're a son, it matters to you that dad's name is honored. He taught his disciples to pray. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Oh God, glorify yourself in me. This is what this is how a son, I want people to know how wonderful my father is. I want his name to be honored. It becomes a big issue in your life. Then, of course, comes zeal. You find in sons a zeal you'll never find in a hireling. Um, I think one of those wonderful and remarkable moments again in the Bible is when you see Jesus really, really stoked up. Um, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Well, not that day he took some cords and plaited them into a whip and came into into the, the court of the Gentiles with a whip in his hand. I don't know whether he cracked it or was banging it on tables or what, but the Bible says he drove them out of the marketplace. They looked, took one look in his eyes and said, this is not a good place to be. They were jumping over walls and going out of doorways. He was driving animals out, turning over tables, money changers, and, 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 and the smoke coming out of his ears as he said, this was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. How dare you take my father's house and turn it into a marketplace? And afterwards they said, we remembered that it was recorded in the, in the Bible, zeal for your house has eaten me up. When there's a, a son's heart in here, there's some, there's some kind of fire in your belly for God's house. It's got to prosper. It has to move forward. It can't be some stagnant stationary group of folks it's got to be moving this is my father's house and that stirred in the heart of a son is it stirring you because you see these are kind of like looking in a mirror and you go you look to see are these fingerprints on my life then of course comes inheritance it's a wonderful thing to be a son because if you if you are a son you're an heir the bible says that in galatians 4 verse 7 since you are a son god has made you an heir you're not poverty struck You're not without resources. You're not alone ever. You are never alone. No, because you're a son of the household. You're a daughter of the household. You have an inheritance. And not only that, you got rights. Because the Bible says in Galatians 4 and verse 5, that we might receive the full rights of sons. That's sonship. But here comes the paradox. That's all fantastic. I love it. Oh, that's brilliant. There's rights, there's inheritance, there's enthusiasm, there's focus, there's identity, all of that stuff. And then comes the discipline. Then comes the paradox, the discipline, that Father is a teacher and the Father in heaven is the everlasting Father with an everlasting purpose. And now comes the discipline because a Father also has the responsibility to prepare you for a journey which you don't even have any clue where it's all going to go. 
you can't even see where this is headed. And so you find in one of the most extended passages on sonship, these statements in Hebrews and chapter 12. Listen to this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Ooh. And chastises every son that he receives. Ooh. It is for discipline that you must endure. And here's the point. If you don't understand that, you may not endure. There'll be people who don't understand the paradox of being sons and daughters of God, and they don't endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Maybe that's part of the problem in our modern age. You know, I know that all over the United States, one of the biggest problems they face is that nearly half the nation is fatherless. Nearly half the nation has never known the, uh, the, the overshadowing constant presence of a father who will correct you if you need it, who will say to you, you that is not how you, you're going to behave. That is not an appropriate thing. Um, and we've even made it uh, illegal to take steps of correction. And I'm, and, and I'm not here to argue against that because I think one of the sad things is that often the only way people have known how to correct is to hit somebody, and that's not the only way to correct. You can correct people without hitting them, and I thank God for that. Pastor Oxley corrected me a lot, but never hit me once. <laughs> Maybe we didn't have fathers. Maybe we never saw this in our life. And so it, it's kind of a foreign concept that there's a father in your life who has a big vision for your future and he is deliberately and determined that he will correct you on the way. Maybe that's a lost concept and so we're unprepared to know how to relate to it anymore. But the Bible goes on. He says, he says this here. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us. And uh, if, I'll go back. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. And sometimes, as I'm going to share tonight, they got it wrong. They did not do a very good job. Fathers are not always... Um, uh, they're not always perfect in the way they do their job. And sometimes they can damage kids on the way because they make bad decisions or they act out of their own brokenness and they impose their own brokenness on their kids and then kids have to learn how to handle that. We're going to talk about that tonight. But the, the, the fundamental principle is still this, that uh, fathers have that role, they have that responsibility. But there is a father who never gets it wrong. He goes on and says this, uh, they did it as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Oh, God. God has a bigger vision for your life than you do. You know, what do you do when your seven-year-old son says to you, Dad, Dad, I don't think I'll go to school anymore. Really, son? What's that about? Oh, Dad, I have a vision for life. Dad, I, I, I've got a vision. I just want to be a cowboy, Dad. 
And, and I've been reading, and cowboys don't do calculus, Dad. And, and, and cowboys, they don't do grammar. No, Dad, no, they just need a horse, and they just need a gun. That's all I need, Dad, is I don't need to go to school. Now, the father who responds to that by saying, oh, gee, son, I, I never realized how big a vision for life you had. Now, forgive me, I've been imposing education on you, and, 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 and it appears to me now how wrong I've been. Oh, yes, please stay home. I'll nail some wheels on that little wooden horse out there, and you can start getting your education going right here at home. The, the, the father that did that, they, they're going to lock him up. The father, a father's going to say to a seven-year-old, oh, look, that's a lovely thought, son, but maybe, maybe one day you'll be a brain surgeon or maybe one day you'll be a pilot or maybe one day you'll be an engineer or a school teacher. So what do you say we just keep going for a few more, we- few more years yet? Oh, no, Dad, don't make me go. Don't me- shut up. I'm your father. I brought you into the world. I can take you out again. You go, you go. <laughs> You're going to school. Conflict. The conflict of vision in life. And the father that doesn't have enough spine to see a bigger picture than a seven-year-old is not a father that, that's going to do you a lot of good. But you see, there is a heavenly father who sees everything. And he has a vision bigger than you and bigger for you than you've ever had for yourself. God has a vision for you that stretches out. We sing it. When I've been there 10,000 years. That's only 10 days. That's like the holiday period, mate. Now we're really getting going. God has a vision for you that stretches from one end of eternity to another. And guess what? He will discipline you according to his vision of your destiny rather than your vision for your destiny. And that's where the paradox of sonship really hits the fan. Listen to what the Bible says. They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That's his vision for your destiny. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. I want you to say that with me because this is such a blessing, this verse in the Bible. Say this with me. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Now, that was very lovely. Let's try one more time. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Underline it. That should be underlined in your Bible because you will run into this over and over again in your life. That discipline is not funny. Discipline is not pleasant. Discipline isn't good fun. It's painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. And here again, we come back to the, to the issue. When you don't understand this, your hands can droop. Oh, I bless you, Jesus. <laughs> this is what happens to worship when... There are moments that are, that are painful in life and they don't make sense to you and you don't appreciate them. The Bible says here, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Sometimes our walk gets weak. We start walking wobbly. We were walking in a straight line and because we have weak knees, we start wandering in our life and if you don't uh, get that corrected, the Bible says this, 
make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint. Next thing, you've got a broken leg. Next thing, you are disqualified. Next thing, your marriage is gone. Next thing, you, you have lost your, your walk with Jesus and you're, now you're writing books against the very one you put your faith in. I've just been preaching a series at the moment called Complaints Against God because somebody needs to do it. And I guess in the process, bumped up against Charles Templeton again, that, that one-time friend and cohort of Dr. Billy Graham who began in that exalted ministry of evangelism together back in the 1930s. But you see, Charles Templeton ran into an, an, an anger he had with God because he didn't think God was running the world well. He ended up writing some virulent anti-Christian books and atheistic books. A man who once shared the pulpit with Billy Graham died uh, with Alzheimer's disease as a, an abject atheist. Why? Because he was angry and in, he had weak knees and the knees he's walked up with next thing had a broken leg. And as for that reason, we have to understand that there is something going on in the broken human heart that must be addressed. Now, listen to this. There is a fracture. In our fallenness, there is a fracture in our hearts. The fracture in our hearts means this. We have a tendency to perceive discipline as if it was punishment. We perceive discipline as punishment. You see this in children. When children begin to perceive that what mum and dad are doing to me is punishment, it can sometimes go very badly. It can often mean broken homes and children walking out the door and into a very violent and unhelpful world where sometimes they never return. Why? Because they did not perceive the kindness of correction. They perceived it as punishment. Where does that come from? Broken hearts. See, broken hearts perceive correction as displeasure. They perceive correction as rejection. You don't like me because if you really liked me, you'd never do this to me. They see it as proof of failure. Oh, the reason I'm struggling in, in, in my, my life or if you're in ministry, serving God in my ministry, in serving, it's because I failed God. I cheated on my Jesus exam in grade three and now the Holy Spirit is, it, it's divine retribution. Oh, stop that. Stop that. Proof of failure. I must have done something wrong. I turned left, Jesus turned right, we've lost each other. No, no, he said he'd never leave you or forsake you. You stop that. That perceived alienation with God, you stop that. That's the voice of a broken heart. Oh, it's divine retribution. Now, I experience this on a very human level. I want to tell you I've experienced this at, at a number of levels. But I will never forget my first time in full-time ministry. I'd left my teaching career to become a youth pastor under Hal Oxley. And my very first week of full-time ministry, I was in his office. And I said to him, Sir... I see you as my father, and I want to serve you as a son. And I had no idea what that would set me up for. Because if you know Hal Oxley, he has been a trainer of men all his life. He was, uh, he was trained in Duntroon. I was never trained in Duntroon. I was trained in Melbourne. <laughs> so he knew all about correction. He knew all about accountability. And as a result, someone once said to me, one of the pastors once said to me, have you ever had a white card? I said, what's a white card? They laughed. They said, you've never had a white card? When you make mistakes, Hal writes it down. He doesn't check you straight away. But one day he'll have an appointment. He'll bring out all his white cards and he'll correct you on the stuff you did wrong. I said, oh, he wouldn't do that. He's a nice man. No, we know he wouldn't do that. Well, blow me down if one day I didn't get to come into his office and there's all these white cards on the desk. 
And I will never forget how that hurt, emotionally, how that hurt. But at the end of it, I, and he, 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 he said, now, Owen, this is the, you're going to serve God. You need to kind of pay attention to some of these things. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll re- I received that with all the humility of a, of a son, yes. And he put his arms around me and hugged me and I went out the door and whew, it, was like, it, was like, it was like getting a belting. Uh, no, one, no one got hit. I would, in fact, I think I would have preferred it if he'd hit me instead of all those white cards. But I survived it. And then we had another session with white cards. And then we had another session with white cards. And I will never forget sitting in his office one day when the white cards were out there. And I felt my heart say, I don't want to hear anymore. And I felt my heart close against a father's correction. It was terrifying. He knew something had happened. And not much longer after that, he stood me down for ministry. Not because I'd done anything, but he just knew that our relationship had changed. He stood me down. I then faced a crisis of loyalty. Why did I join this church? Because I trusted the man. Well, what are you going to do, Al, now that there's correction? Now that you've been stood down for ministry, what will you do now? Almost immediately, an offer came to pastor someone else's church. Oh, I could feel the flesh wanting to say, well, you may not understand my brilliant capacities, but clearly other people do. I shall take my shining light and move it to some other place. I realized, I don't think that's God. I think this is a test of loyalty. And I made a decision to fast and pray for 21 days to get my heart right. And when God began to breathe on my heart, my heart melted in all of its hurt. And I realized how much that man loved me. And this was just like any father. It was probably hurting him more than it was hurting me. And I made a decision that I would trust that man. And I have never um, regretted that decision from that day to this. But here's an amazing thing. Almost immediately after I had resolved the issue of the crisis of that relationship between my father and, and myself, Hal Oxley and myself, I went into a season of temptation which was so terrifying, I never want to go there again. I found myself attracted to a woman uh, who was not my wife. Now, I had felt attractions to women before. It's not uncommon for men to have that. It may not be uncommon for women either. I've never asked them to vote on it, but it's not uncommon. But I'd survived it before. They go away, but this one didn't go away. It got worse and worse. And after some months down the track, it was such a strong and compelling, like a force... I, I th- I'm in danger of acting on this. And I took a great risk. It's one of the reasons I wrote my book, From Good Man to Man- Valiant Man, because men do go through these things from time to time, and sometimes they, they form the wrong conclusions. I thought what our brother said at the beginning here, the glasses through which we view our, view our life was, was priceless, because that's exactly what I'm talking to you about. I, I d- made a decision that I would risk everything, and I told my wife. And my wife was magnificent. Instead of, you know running, getting into a flap and getting all hurt, she said to me, Alan, this is an attack on both of us and we're going to fight this together. So now I had an ally. Um, it still didn't go away. The, the, the pressure just kept mounting and got worse and worse. Hal Oxley had stood me down. 
I had resolved the issue of loyalty. I was behaving like a magnificent son. The last thing I ever wanted to do was to go to him and say, oh, pastor, I'm struggling with temptation. I wanted Al Oxley lying in bed at night thinking, I wonder why I would ever stand down a nice and loyal boy like Al. I mean, he's faultless. I mean, he's magnificent. I mean, his faith shines like a light in the dark. I, I wanted him wondering about, I didn't want to go to him and say, sir, I'm struggling and having, oh, I knew there was something going on there. I knew I, I did not want to relieve the pressure on him for a moment. There was a naughtiness in there, a bit of naughtiness in there. But there came a point when I realized this was, a, this was not about pride. This was, if I was going to survive, it was going to be through humility. I'll never forget going to sit down with pastor and saying, pastor, I've got to talk to you. I am struggling with an attraction to another woman. And it's relentless. It just will not go away. I'll never forget that precious man saying, Alan, this is what we'll do. You don't act on it. Whatever happens, you don't act on it. If you don't act on it, we can deal with it between you and I. If you do act on it, then, of course, it has to be dealt with a different way. And he would meet with me every couple of weeks like a father, and he would encourage me, and he'd pray over me, and he'd rebuke the devil, and not, nothing made an ounce of difference. Do you know how I perceived that year? I perceived that year as proof that God had abandoned me, that I had displeased God, that I was a failure, that I was involved in some kind of divine punishment and retribution. But I wasn't. What I perceived as punishment was, in fact, one of the most gracious acts of God's work in my life, allowing me to be tested before I would take up a new ministry position. Because, you see, at the end of that struggle, that desire for that woman just went away completely. When I meet that woman again today, I say to myself, what the Jimmy were you thinking? Because you see, I couldn't get back in touch with those feelings for anything. But I survived by being humble and telling the truth to my wife and to, to my father, my, my, uh, my uh, pastor. And God wasn't punishing me. He was preparing me. At the end of that year, it drifted away. It all went away. And I got a phone call one afternoon from Mount Evelyn Christian Fellowship. Would you consider becoming our pastor? You see, they'd been having a revival in their church. God had grown it from 50 to about 350 in 10 months. And then the minister got into adultery with the church secretary and broke everybody's heart. And for a whole year, the church had been without a pastor. And God was saying, Al, I'm going to send you into a church and I want you to serve it. But before I send you, I'm your dad. I know your journey. I have to prepare you. Because if you go there and fail there, you'll destroy the church. And if you're going to fail, let's fail here where you've got a father to look after you. I'm going to put you through the wall. That year of preparation opened a door to 26 of the most wonderful years you could ever imagine. I came out of that prepared by God to go into a church that God wanted to do something wonderful with. India, COM, and the thousands of churches that have flowed out of it since that time all came out of that little country church. Life Keys, the Care Force Life Keys that Helen and I carry to the uttermost parts of the world came out of that little church. But God said, Al, I, I, I've got to discipline you before I can set you free. It was one of the most painful experiences in my life. It wasn't disqualification. It was qualification. Because that's what fathers do. They prepare you for a journey and you don't even know where the journey's taking you. 
Let me close by saying one thing. Israel was supposed to be God's son, but they never got over their slave mentality. You know, even after all the visitations in Israel, when God brought one miracle after another through uh, in, in Egypt, he brought one miracle after another through Moses and drew them out through the Red Sea by fire and by cloud and water out of rocks. Do you know how they responded when they hit trouble? Listen to what the Bible says. Moses replied, said to them, you sat in your tents and you said, God hates us. That's a broken heart. That's a broken heart dealing with the pain of discipline. God hates me. I've failed. He's left me. I'm abandoned. No, stop that. You stop that. That's a broken heart responding to the pain of discipline. He says this, God carried you as a father carries his child. He carried you the whole way until he brought you here. And you said, do you know why he did that? That he might teach you that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, let's see that unfold in, the, in another son. His name is Jesus. He's lived 30 years. He comes to the Jordan River. John is there baptizing. He yields himself to John's baptism. The heavens open. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Oh, good on you, Dad. You beauty, I've been waiting 30 years for this day. Okay, boys, roll out the tent, bring in the TV cameras, let the healing ministry begin. No, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. Do you know what the very next verse in the Bible is? And Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's not how you treat sons. That's outrageous. That's child abuse. I thought you said you liked me. And here I am out in the wilderness and the devil's trying to beat the snot out of me. Prepared for a journey. Being prepared for a journey that would end at a cross. And when the devil comes to, to Jesus at the end of that, listen to the words that come out of his mouth. If you are a son. <laughs> sons, shouldn't be, sons shouldn't be sitting in the wilderness here, mate. No, no. Sons shouldn't be fasting and praying. No, 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 no. They've got rights. They've got authority. I mean, they, they storm the earth. They take strongholds. They, they magnify God and power. If you are a son... Turn these stones into bread. You shouldn't be suffering. Ah, uh -huh, really? Listen to Jesus. He said, shut your face. It's in the original. It's not, uh, you've you got to go way back to, to the original. Shut your face. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He is my father. Do you know what the core issue involved in when the pressure comes on? It's trust. Can you trust your father loves you even when it's painful? Can you trust your father has your best and everlasting interests at heart even when it's painful? Can you in the midst of your pain say this, trust and obey because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. You are not alienated. 
you haven't been forgotten. He is not punishing you. He is a father. And no discipline ever is a lot of laughs. No discipline is pleasant. But after all, it, res it, it releases the extraordinary fruit of righteousness. I thank God for the worst year in my life. It prepared me for 26 fruitful years and the fruit continues. I thank God that he knew my journey better than I did. I thank God he had a bigger vision for my life than I did. He has the same for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, today I pray for every man and woman in this place. I pray for their hearts and souls in the midst of the struggles and the pressures of life. I pray for them as they face momentary but painful challenges. Things that Paul would later say, I don't count the struggles of this life to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. I pray for those who right now find themselves in a contradiction. They've been, it hurts and they're, and they're disappointed. Now I'm, I'm going to do something. If that is you, if you hear this message and it catches you right where you are today, stand to your feet. Just stand where you are. I'm going to pray over you. Just stand where you are. That's the way. Sometimes just standing is like saying, I heard what I heard and it matters. This matters to me in my life. This matters. Father, you see them as they stand. Only you know the story at the back of, that, of each life. Only you know the struggles. This is my prayer that their faith will not fail. Take your hands and put them in front of you. Just do, do, do like this. And let's do what the Hebrew says. The Bible says lift up those hands that hang down. Just lift them up a little, just a little. Lift them up and say to God, I trust you. Just say in your heart, just say, I trust you. I don't like what's happening. You don't have to. Just trust God. Say, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you and I will follow you. I will not get on a wonky pathway. I will not give myself permission to sin because I'm disappointed. I will not give myself permission to sin. I will set straight paths for my feet and I will honor you. Father, do your work and then open a door of life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today.